0: This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Sometimes when we bring scientists from very different fields together, it's very clear how their areas of expertise might overlap. Usually, though, it's not so clear. And so from week to week, this radio show is a bit of a leap of faith. We're going to take a leap today, but I think it's going to work out because when you bring smart people together, no matter how different their world seem to be at first, the connections almost always come along. And some really fascinating ways joining us on the line today from corvallis oregon is steve strauss he is a professor of forest biotechnology in the department of forest ecosystems and society at oregon state university and his genetic transformation lab has produced thousands of transgenic trees He last joined us to talk about how genetic engineering can be used to keep trees from growing where they're not supposed to grow. And he's back today to talk about a recent study that demonstrates that poplar trees can be genetically modified to reduce negative impacts on air quality. Hi, Steve. Welcome back.
1: Hello, Matt. It's nice to be here.
0: And also with us on the line from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, is Joshua Jackson. He was the first author on a study recently published in the journal Science that shows the impact of culture on the way we describe emotion. Joshua Jackson, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Let's start today with a conversation about poplar trees. These are fast-growing trees that are a source of biofuel and other products, including quite a lot of the paper we use. Because they're fast-growing and good for these products, there's a lot of interest in growing them commercially, but they've got a drawback, a pretty big drawback. Steve Strauss, can we start by talking about isoprene and what it does to the environment?
1: Yeah, it's produced by particularly broadleaf plants, poplars, eucalyptus, oaks, in quite high quantities. Uh, There's other similar molecules produced by things like pines, like you probably Heard of alpha-pinene, the things that make pine smell piney. But these isoprenes in particular are released in very large amounts, and it's known that they have a role in stress resistance in trees, helping them tolerate very high temperatures. But it's also known that they catalyze air pollution reactions, the production of ozone and photochemical smog. And so as people plant a lot more of these trees, they also tend to contribute to uh, pollution problems in the regions they're growing in.
0: This is sort of, I mean, it's a little bit mind-blowing because there's this common assumption, or at least I think an assumption that I've long had, and I think a lot of people share, that anything natural is good, but poplars are natural, but they're not necessarily good in mass, right?
1: Yeah, when you grow them in a very, very large quantity in a region where you also have uh, 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 auto air pollution and smokestacks, these things uh, get together and they catalyze reactions that lead to chemicals that we breathe that we simply don't want. So just because it's natural and any scientist will tell you that doesn't mean it's safe or good, really depends on the mechanism. Certain kinds of wild fruits, if you eat them, you will die. So that's why we have things like tomatoes where the toxins have been taken out through plant breeding.
0: And what's troubling, particularly as we look to the future, a future that includes a significant amount of global warming potentially, is that this chemical is created often in response to climate stress. So presumably, as we create more climate stress on these trees, these trees may be creating more of these chemicals, yes?
1: Yeah, in general, as things get hotter you will tend to have more isoprene coming from these trees. And then, of course, as we look to alternatives to fossil fuels, one of those options are biofuels. And poplars have been discussed, and they're still of great interest to the Department of Energy as a biofuel, particularly for marginal kinds of lands, not prime agricultural lands. So we think about, for example, in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, of growing a lot of poplars as a biofuel. And if we did, There's no question that the air pollution would get worse in the Willamette Valley of Oregon.
0: So your research team, which includes scientists from the United States and Germany, genetically modified poplars so they wouldn't produce isoprene. How did you come upon the idea that you could even that you could even do that?
1: As happens often in science, you know, different strands come together. Uh, Physiologists were studying how plants tolerate stress and what chemicals they produce and put into the air, discovered isoprene, and at the same time, they went down and mined in the DNA and the proteins and found the genes and found a particular gene for isoprene production at the end of a biosynthetic pathway that if you could mutate or turn down that gene, you would get very little or no isoprene. Parallel with that, a technique called RNA interference it's kind of like an earlier, an earlier version of CRISPR, if you will. It's a natural mechanism where you can trick a plant. It's, it's like an immune reaction where you give a plant a little bit of a gene that you want it to actually destroy. It destroys the mRNA, the messenger RNA from it. So we use this RNA interference technique to take the natural isoprene gene and sort of flip it around is actually what happens put that into the poplar trees, and then that gene turns down the natural gene for isoprene. So you get very, very little, almost zero, in fact.
0: And so you kind of gave the trees immunization, yeah?
1: Exactly. That's, you know, it's, uh, the technical details are different. Uh, it's not like an immune system thing like you have with vaccines and animals, but the net result is the same.
0: And suffice it to say, this worked. You were able to create poplars that didn't produce isoprene, but you had to test these things. How long did you look at them and did it continue to work?
1: Yeah, you know what happened is some of the German collaborators really were leading on the science and they produced versions of these low isoprene trees in Germany, but because the climate, the political climate, the regulatory climate for GMO anything, they couldn't put them outside in a plantation condition. We also couldn't get their poplars shipped from Germany to the U.S. because of quarantine reasons, quarantine concerns of diseases on poplars coming over. So we created them. Actually, a German scientist, a postdoc, came over to my lab. We recreated those trees, and then we propagated them up and put them in these field trials in Oregon and in Arizona to get our super, super hot, stressful environment. And that's what we could do in the U.S. because our regulatory regime, while by no means simple, is at least workable. We can get things out in the field and test them for a couple of years.
0: This is fascinating to me. I mean, could you have predicted these sorts of political and regulatory obstacles that you would have to cross just for the simple idea of like, hey, we want to bring science that happened in Germany to the United States?
1: At the start of my career in this area, about 30 years ago, no one imagined the pushback uh, GMOs in, in many, many countries around the world, including in the USA. And the European science, biotech science and all, was just on the same track as that in the United States in terms of pursuing these kinds of biotech solutions. And then I think because of GMO crops and food in particular, the whole mood shifted so dramatically that those things, they pass laws, and you basically cannot plant anything out of, uh, outside in almost anywhere in Europe these days. In the U.S., we have a more tolerant environment, and you might know that, you know, the the large majority of our corn and soy and cotton and some other crops are biotech.
0: So what comes next then? Because we still have these concerns and these conditions, but also these trees that you've created can propagate, can grow and be grown without so much of the pollutants that they create. So what are kind of the next steps, both scientifically and politically, to move this forward?
1: Yeah, you know, if we had a kind of what I would call a science-based regulatory system, the government tries but the politics are so thick and there's so much vested interest that it's really hard to use anything that's GMO. So one thing we could do is we could use a CRISPR technique and try to get rid of the transgenic nature and therefore sort of bypass some of the worst regulations. That would be one option going forward. But logically, whether you use this RNA interference, RNAi, or CRISPR to turn down this gene, it could also possibly be done by conventional breeding. But then you'd need to look for very rare trees that might not be the most productive in a breeding program and and really slow things down a lot. But the next step logically would be to do the same genetic modifications using either of those techniques in more commercial lines and test them much more extensively. This is just two field tests, you know, for a couple of years. We really need in a breeding program, we'd look at that over many years in many different sites and really learn about whether there are any negatives And it could be that we don't want to turn down the isoprene 99% as we did in the study. It could be that turning them down 90%, say, might give us the air pollution benefit and also give us a margin for stress tolerance. But because of these regulatory barriers and also the public perception barriers, that's really hard to do. And if you want to produce wood and have it be – Uh, so-called green certified these days, you can't use a GMO or a gene editing process no matter what, not even for a search. It's this complete barrier under the myth that there's something non-green about GMOs by nature.
0: That's Steve Strauss. His team's recent study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences describes the result of a three-year trial of poplar trees that were genetically engineered to reduce pollutants. Steve, can you stick around and listen in as I chat with our next guest?
1: You're very happy to. Thank
0: you. Okay, so let's play a game. As, As long as you're not driving, and please, really, if you're driving, don't do this. Close your eyes and think about the word pity. What does that word mean to you? How do you picture it in your mind's eye? How do you feel about that word? Okay, now wipe pity from your mind and replace it with love. Now what do you see? How do you feel? What does that word mean in your life? If you are a native English speaker, chances are that you had two very different experiences with the words pity and the word love. And that's the case with the equivalent words in many languages. But there are some notable exceptions to this, including, for instance, a family of languages in an area stretching from Madagascar to the west to the Pacific Islands in the east, where these words are a lot more semantically similar. Joshua Jackson, it's probably not surprising to most people to learn that different languages describe emotions differently. But what is very common in languages is that people tend to distinguish emotions based on whether they are pleasant or unpleasant to experience and whether they involve low or high levels of arousal. And this is quite similar across languages, but there are some differences. And your team was interested in studying these differences. You did this by... Well, you did this by building a really large database of colexification, and I guess first we should stop and talk about this concept. What is colexification?
2: Well, it's a phenomena that is common in any language that I've looked at at least, where you have single word that is expressing multiple concepts. And so, for example, uh, the English word "funny," we can use it to refer to something that's humorous, but we can also use it to refer to something that's odd. Other languages, like Russian, have the same word for hand and arm. Many languages have the same word for bark and skin. And what you can see from these examples is that often when we colexify different concepts, we view them as semantically similar. And so it gives you a window into how people uh, semantically associate concepts in their world in different languages.
0: And your database included words from 25 25- languages. First of all, I didn't even realize there were that many languages. And 24 emotional terms. These were words like regret and hope and surprise and pride. And you found that in a lot of areas of the world, ideas like love and hope are strongly co And in other places, that connection is less robust. Let's start by talking about the strong connections. Were you surprised by the ways in which languages that exist in in really different parts of the world, thousands upon thousands and thousands of miles away, distinguished pleasant emotions from unpleasant emotions?
2: Well, I didn't have very, very strong expectations going in because I had never seen an analysis of this scope before. But there was some work that we were building on with that hypothesis that's showing that those feelings that we have of pleasantness, unpleasantness, of uh, high and low arousal, those are experiences that can be traced back to very specific neural networks and physiological networks like the autonomic nervous system. And so, if any aspects of emotional experience would be universal, then uh, we thought it would be those aspects.
0: Does that suggest some sort of like universal element of emotional experiment? I mean, if it's kind of deeply embedded in our brain, that stems from biological needs, yes?
2: It does, but uh, I think that what was insightful about these analyses, at least for me, was that all psychologists had had a feeling that emotion has at least some universal experiences, but we really didn't know what those were. And a lot of textbooks that you'll find in psychology that undergraduates will read suggest that there are basic emotions like anger, fear, and sadness that have corresponding brain structures, like the amygdala is the fear center. And what we were seeing here was that those discrete emotions actually had really diverse semantic content, but it was broader, more basic feelings of goodness and badness that were more universal.
0: Is there one emotional concept that is like closest from one place to another across cultures and languages?
2: It's really difficult to establish that because we saw quite a bit of diversity. I mean, there were concepts that tended to go hand in hand, like grief and regret that both might involve uh, retrospection. But uh, I think that to say that there's one concept that has a universal meaning would be kind of missing the point of this study, which is showing how flexible concepts are. I guess one related point would be that there were some concepts that were very common that we didn't expect. So we didn't see words like sadness and anger at nearly the levels of universality that you might expect. I mean, only about 30% of our languages, but words like grief were nearly universal and love.
0: So let's, let's talk about the emotional ideas that were not so closely bonded. When you found those, geography played a, a really big role. Yes,
2: what we found was that uh, language families that were in close geographic proximity had uh, the most similar networks of semantic associations. If they closed their eyes and thought of all those words that were related to grief or pity or love or want, they would think of more similar associations.
0: Was there an emotional concept that showed up most connected to the greatest diversity of different words?
2: I think that the two that jumped out at me were, well, one one of them you already mentioned, which was love, which had both positive and also negative co depending on where in the world we were looking. And the other concept that jumped out at me for being somewhat diverse was surprise, which in Indo-European languages, English is an Indo-European language, surprise was mostly linked with positive concepts. But in languages that were native to South America, native to the Pacific Islands, um, surprise was a more negative concept, more often connected to things like fear and
0: anxiety. One of the things I was interested in, that in order to move forward our understanding of emotion and language we had to do something that i think well i think a lot of people would think wasn't very emotional it wasn't a touchy feely analysis this was a very complex and quantitative analysis of comp- computationally aggregated data is it is it strange to think of emotion in these sorts of hard mathematical terms
2: well I think it's actually a better approach to studying emotions than, than thinking about it through uh, more introspective terms. And I think it's because as humans, we, we want to identify with feelings and thoughts that we might not actually recognize. And, uh, and we tend to perceive more universality often than there really is, especially in faces. And so this approach that we took, looking just at the way that people um, name concepts through words, it was, in a sense, removing as much experiment or bias as we could from the equation. And so we were able to just get a purely quantitative estimate of how much diversity there really is in emotion. And uh, what we found was that there was a tremendous amount of diversity.
0: You and your team focused on emotion as a start, but there are so many other kinds of words and ideas out there. What would you want to turn this process on next?
2: Well, it's funny that you bring that up, actually, because this whole project began when I uh, worked as a research fellow, a visiting research fellow at the Max Planck Institute, where a lot of our collaborators are from. And they had begun realizing that they could build these large databases of language, but they weren't quite sure what to do with them yet, because they were linguists. And I think that what me and my fellow psychologists immediately saw was that this was a method that Allowed us to make maps of the mind in the way that we've been speaking about since before Freud, you know, these semantic associations that we might have. And so really, you can use these maps to test any question about psychology and, and how we structure concepts in the world around us. One thing that we're working on right now is we're looking at how people represent the mind and the body in different cultures and the different ways that people connect those types of concepts.
0: That's Joshua Jackson, his team's recent study on co was published in the journal Science. And now for an introduction, Steve Strauss, this is psychologist Joshua Jackson. And Joshua, this is forest scientist Steve Strauss.
2: Hello, Josh. It's a pleasure to meet you, Steve.
0: So guys, before we were all on together, I was chatting with Steve on the phone uh, briefly, and you know we were talking about the way we communicate science, and and then in our interview together, uh, Steve mentioned you know the difficulties of helping people understand what GMOs are and what GMOs aren't. That's well, that's all about language and word choices, but. Uh, Joshua, your research makes me recognize this like far deeper, greater level of complexity to this whole challenge that scientists have is that you? there's probably not just one solution for communicating because, well, there are a lot of different kinds of people within any single culture, but there are a, a lot of cultures and a lot of languages out there.
2: Well, it's funny that you bring that up because as Steve was saying, Speaking about how people are resistant to GMOs, I thought that it's actually a really interesting question for psychologists to look into because we have methods to create networks, not just of how words are connected to each other, but also the kinds of associations that we have with different concepts. And so if you really wanted to get a good view into how people think about GMOs, you could have people build these associative networks with the concepts they associate with GMOs, and you could isolate where in the country or where in the world
1: you get the most negative concepts associated with you know, the idea of GMOs. Yeah, I think that's actually fascinating, Josh. Uh, During various ballot measures to ban or stringently label GMOs, had to talk directly to the public in different ways. And the, uh, the public relations people in industry are so concerned about the language and the terms you use and how those can be different in different parts of the country and with the general public. And so, for example, a word like chemical, is a word that they would say never, ever use when you're talking to the public. That's scary. Now, to any scientist, that's just part of nature, right? It's all made of chemicals. So it's quite challenging.
2: And it it makes me think that probably the benchmark for what organizations do is they develop a single script or a list of words that are positive and words that are negative when you're describing uh, innovation like GMOs or CRISPR, for that matter. But really that's probably not just one script. You probably need so many for different regions. It's probably such a more nuanced process than what organizations
1: currently do. Yeah, you know, I'm interested, if we see on our food now very commonly in, in Oregon, probably, probably in uh, Utah, California as well, you know, a non-GMO label, very, very prominent, uh, even though the science doesn't say anything about them being any less safe than any other kind of food. That word, that term, has a stigma. It's moved from being a, a description of something scientific or food quality to something that's bad, and I, I don't understand how that exactly happens socially or neurally. But it seems like that has Josh. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that.
2: Well, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of analyses that people do in, in the study of culture and how cultural changes, they'll try to use the regional variation in. Uh, in attitudes or behaviors to get at the origins of these things. And it sounds like there is a lot of regional variation. I mean, you're speaking about Bangladesh uh, and the U.S. and people's distrust of GMOs. And so I think probably the best approach would probably be to do a geographic but also a historic look of where these attitudes started and what might have contributed to that process.
0: Languages are evolving, and that evolution... Um, occurs in no small part in our modern world because of the way that media use word and brings terms together, even from different cultures. So if we did an analysis like the one you just did, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, do you think that we would see a significantly different thing?
2: Well, it's a really good question, and it's got kind of a two-part answer. The first part is, is no because the exact analysis that I was doing in this paper is in a lexicon or just it could be words in a dictionary and their semantic content. And when you're speaking about languages, lexicons, they tend to evolve very slowly. And so co won't come and go in the matter of weeks or months. However, uh, the way that I've grouped words together based on co is just one example of how you can group words together semantically. And an approach that I've used in some other research uh, focuses on more natural language processing methods of uh, semantically organizing words. And so what you could do is you could test which words were most often co-occurring with concepts, emotion concepts, GMOs, any concepts in news articles. And because there are so many news articles published every day, this gives you really great data with really good temporal resolution where you actually see The distance between concepts drifting apart or coming together
1: based on how often they're co occurring in the same articles. 30 years or so in this area, there's been tremendous change in in terms related to biotech, food, and agriculture compared to when I began, including the uh, connotations of words like chemical and genetics and engineering and biotechnology that were strongly positive back in sort of an earlier day and now are considered much more negative. as as society has shifted and sort of how it approaches these kinds of issues.
0: Gentlemen, I hate to break this up, but I've got to break this up. Uh, Steve Strauss, thank you so much for joining us again on Undisciplined.
1: Matt and Josh, that was a lot of fun. Thank you very much.
0: And Joshua Jackson, thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. It was really fun.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Dissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. And go have big ideas.